Now, this is Box to Box with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgley. Oh, what a goal! For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. Absolutely fantastic! Hello and welcome to Box to Box, the show that is everything football. You're with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgley to run the rule over the past week in the world game. First edition news with Willem van Denderen shortly. And of course, our former ITN journo turned pundit Derek Dyson will be joining us throughout the show. Now, first up, a few days into the Asian Cup in Qatar, an unconvincing start for Australia against India. But Graham Arnold's men got the job done. And for the favourites, Japan, a 4-2 result in their favour against a determined Vietnam suggests this tournament has some upsets building. We'll talk about what we've seen so far with our friend Scott McIntyre from the Asian game. Then, just days after we farewelled another member of the exclusive club who have won the Men's World Cup, both as a player and coach Mario Zagallo, another iconic great of the game, and certainly Germany's most influential both on and off the field, Franz Beckenbauer passed away at the age of 78. Born in Munich months before the end of the Second World War, the Kaiser spent hours and hours kicking a ball against a brick wall in the bombed-out ruins of his hometown. As our guest, who has spoken so eloquently this past week in tribute, Raphael Honigstein from The Athletic wrote in his obituary, hard work and repetition, not God-given talent, were at the heart of his unsurpassed impact on German football and beyond. But Beckenbauer's technique was so extraordinary, his touch so assured, he never looked like he was trying particularly hard. We'll speak to Raf soon about what his career and passing meant to Die Mannschaft and to the country of Germany at large. So, Edge, uh, football goes on, the Asian Cup, AFCON, and, and plenty of club football. But to twist the phrase, they didn't break the mould after Beckenbauer. Rather, he became the mould. Oh, didn't he? What? And he, he redefined the position of sweeper, didn't he? When he, um, you know, when he basically... Uh, emerged on the scene. Um, he did everything, didn't he, in football? He won European Championships, uh, World Cups, European um, uh, Champions League equivalents, etc. Um, but when you watch some of the video, Rob, um, I think Raf Heinigstein describes it as upright elegance. Mm. When you actually watch him play on the video, he never seems to look at his feet or the mm. ball, mm. which gave him the ability to, you know, just those incredibly incisive passes. So for those of us uh, and those of us who have played the game at uh, some sort of level, any sort of level, that is a very difficult skill to master. And he did that, didn't he? And and he also cast a big shadow across um, off the field, didn't he, when he finished mm-hmm. playing, obviously, a World Cup coach. But uh, importantly, um, he was a chairman of Bayern Munich. Um, in his role as chairman, he stepped. I remember he stepped in to coach a couple of times, mm-hmm. from the from chairman of the board to coach. That's how uh, how how good he was. And he also um, has a bit of a uh, famous role in Australian football politics too, because mm. the twenty twenty two World Cup bid uh, that Australia, <laughs> under the leadership of Frank Lowy, undertook, we only got one vote, and that mm-hmm. came from Franz Beckenbauer. So, mm-hmm. um, what a remarkable life journey in the sport and he's a icon and a giant of the game and yeah we should all be a little bit sad to see him go 78 years of age it's a little yeah. bit young these days isn't it yeah no it sure is but um towards the end i mean I, I, listening to some of the podcast uh, commentary around it some of the the the, uh, the issues that he needed to deal with in later in his life uh, some are suggesting uh, may have uh, have, uh, have contributed to his poor health he, he lost a son um to brain cancer and uh, and equally and we were going to ask uh, rafael about this uh, uh some of the controversy around uh, the investigations into the 2006 uh, uh world cup um that was an incredible success but 
in the inevitable murky world of FIFA, um, Derek and I will ask Raphael about this and, and how it's being treated. But before we do that, um, look, Willem, over to you. We, we don't want to steal all of your thunder, mate. Yeah. Hello, gents. I want to start this week with Socceroos and Matilda Central for the Green and Gold Army, bringing it uh, forward in the show. But it is a sombre one as we mourn the passing of Stephen Labor, Socceroo number 444, who was passed aged 46. He played 15 times for the Socceroos, including at the 2000 uh, Olympics. That is a very significant achievement to be an Olympian on, on home soil, uh, as well as variously for the Brisbane Strikers, Sydney Olympic, uh, and the Wollongong Wolves, and spent time in Japan and the Netherlands as well. A teammate of his uh, at Wollongong, Luke Wilkshire, has paid tribute, saying, we all need to be better. Sadly, players are easily forgotten. Rest in peace, Labes. And please do reach out to those around you uh, if you are struggling, to say the very least. Edge, uh, I'll throw it to you. We will, in a second, dissect the Socceroos 2-0 win over uh, India with, with Stephen in mind. But for now, uh, your recollections of, of him as a player. Well, I remember him bursting on the scene at the national team um, through the Oli Roos, his participation in that, at a time when he was surrounded by legends, um, you know, the, the golden era of Australian football. He, he you know, he played uh, regularly over a period of three or four years during that time and obviously to get an opportunity uh, and rub shoulders with the golden generation in those squads from time to time uh, is a great reflection on him. It's a very sad story. We don't know the circumstances by which he's passed, but uh, we can all speculate. We won't do that on air, but yeah, it's, uh, it's left me a little bit sad today. And you're right, Willem, uh, if you've got some friends that you know that are maybe doing it a little bit tough, uh, why don't you reach out and ask them if they're okay. The Socceroos have defeated India 2-0 in their Asian Cup opener. Jackson Irvine and Geordie Boss finding the net after a goalless first half. Placed by Subhashish. Found the cross on Gurpreet, only touched it into the path of Jackson Irvine. And that mistake allows Australia to open the scoring. Their first goal at this AFC Asian Cup. And it's Jackson Irvine who's got it. And finally the breakthrough arrives courtesy of a mistake by the Indian goalkeeper. Australia had the better of possession and chances, but were well held by India until Irvine's opener, with all three of Graham Arnold's initial subs of Boss, McGree and Silvera, in my opinion, having an impact. In the group's other game, Uzbekistan and Syria played out a nil-all draw. The Socceroos meet Syria on Thursday at the Jasim bin Hamad Stadium, which edge is an unfamiliar venue compared to some uh, to the Socceroos, given their recent trips to the country. Uh, so, yeah, let's, let's jump in. A bit of unease at, at halftime with the score of nil all, been particularly sort of wasteful from from set pieces. But for once, and for the first time in a long time, I felt that there were there were plenty of cards to play and all three of those subs did have an impact. Fortunately, the goal, the first goal went in uh, so that he could play around, Graham Arnold could play around with that in a fairly stress-free manner. And if that hadn't have worked, he could have gone to Fornaroli earlier. It could have been Yangi. It could have been a Lewis Miller. So it feels like there is plenty of depth there. It certainly does. Look, it was a um, disjointed performance, wasn't it? The first half was very scratchy. And um, it, look, there's a lot of contenders in this Asian Cup. And uh, if you look about, I think people have to understand tournament football. The group games are very different to the knockout phase. And the first game um, can be a bit scratchy. Um, obviously, it's not been a huge uh, build-up for all of the teams. So um, look, I'm just very happy the Socceroos got through that game. Uh, India were, I mean, you described it as defending resolutely. You know, they parked the bus. They crossed the halfway line no more than six or seven times for the entire game. So it was not as if they were having a go. Um, 
Uh, but yeah, look, it was a frustrating afternoon for the Socceroos. And I, I watched the press conference after the game very closely. And Graham looked like he wasn't very happy at all. And um, he chose his words carefully. But um, when you know his body language, I think he was pretty. Uh, he was pretty steamed about that performance. So I think the Socceroos will get better for it. Uh, I think we can move past it. I think you're right to acknowledge that the bench is deep and there's lots of options. I was really, um, I want to ask you, Willem, I was really interested in the selections. We obviously predicted Gethin Jones would get the start at right back, but what did you think of Bacchus's performance? He's got big shoes to fill for, um, playing in the same position that Aaron Moy did. Uh, how did you think he performed? I thought he was really good. I thought he was one of the, the, the better players out there. And I, I've got a little note here. Well done to him. That's that's his spot to lose. I think the issue was probably ahead of him in, in Connor Metcalf. Um, not that he was he was awful, but if you are going to be without an Aaron Moy who can very calmly sit in front of two banks of four and play a pass and, and pick something out, if you do need to go through things a little bit quicker, uh, then you probably need a little bit more physicality in there. And I think it's probably going to be McGree uh, as opposed to Metcalf who, who starts the next game against against Syria, Michael. Yeah, Syria, much stronger team. You know, they they, they had a draw. Um, it was a, a fairly industrious game. Uzbekistan looked good too, didn't they? Um, they? They could have scored a few goals. They were obviously the better team in that match. So the next stadium's only 10,000 seats. Um, it's over 9,000 seats have been sold to Syrians. So expect a hostile atmosphere in that stadium. Um, I'm looking forward to the game immensely. And um, Syria need to win. So I'd expect them to attack. And that might create opportunities for us. So tournament football, um, lots of twists and turns to come. And the Australians, uh, we got away with it. And uh, let's just focus on what's ahead of us now. Looking forward to jumping into the rest of the tournament thus far with Scott McIntyre in a moment. But for now, club football, the A-League's inaugural Unite round saw a flood of goals in the men's competition, 28 across six matches, as 47,000 made their way through the gates of Sydney stadiums uh, for the 12 matches all told. Wellington's 4-3 win over Perth sees them remain top for another week, Costa Barbarossa scoring his eighth goal in five. In the women's, Courtney Vine returned from injury off the bench for Sydney to score the game's only goal, while in Canberra's 3-1 win over Adelaide, a significant piece of history was written by Michelle Heyman. Now Canberra, can they break quickly here? Flannery looks to find Heyman and does so. Michelle Heyman one-on-one -on -one with the keeper! There's the 100! Michelle Heyman equalises for Canberra! So our first Unite round is in the books, Rob, and you're going to speak about it in depth a little bit later on in, uh, in stoppage time, but storylines in the women's and yeah goals in the uh, in the men's two four three affairs and uh, a three all as well yeah look we are going to talk about it in a little more detail the uh, the ups and, and the downs the uh, uh, the things that were done well and the ones that weren't but um i think the one thing that we we walk away from is this was a, a quickly arranged affair and and could have been done a lot better so um you know the one thing i just noticed was a lot of empty seats in 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 big stadiums and small stadiums for that matter so uh, yeah, we'll listen out for stoppage time later in the week and we'll, uh, we'll dig a bit deeper. A quick European wrap as we welcome in Derek Dyson for the first time in the Premier League. Manchester City came from behind to defeat Newcastle 3-2 in the game of the round and closed the gap on league leaders Liverpool to just two points. Kevin De Bruyne back from injury to set up 20-year-old Oscar Bob's first City goal. Great name and great feat. Uh, and as I say, a brilliant game. The German and Spanish leagues returned from their respective winter breaks as well. Bayer Leverkusen remained top of the Bundesliga, despite Bayern's 3-0 win over Hoffenheim in their Beckenbauer tribute match. Uh, although it should also be noted, Union Berlin, who have been 
the darlings of this show for a little bit. We've watched them pretty closely. Uh, they're just three points from the relegation zone. And in Spain, Girona uh, were held to a nil-all draw with Almira. Uh, they still lead La Liga, but by just a solitary point for now. And Real Madrid have a game in hand. Derek, back to England. Was there a, a groan across the, the sort of Premier League populace that City, with that performance, uh, and been away to the Club World Cup, they've played some cup fixtures, they've been a little bit behind on their, their Premier League sort of schedule, but with a performance like that and De Bruyne back, they have clicked into gear, maybe two weeks later than they normally would. Yeah, I mean, a lot of has been made of the fact that Haaland is missing and will be missing for a little while now, but what a player to, to bring back into the team Kevin De Bruyne really the talisman uh, of the side and yeah look they did it did it the hard way uh, away at Newcastle uh, getting the goal at the end there and Guardiola obviously very pleased with the uh, with the result there but uh, you know you do also wonder where this Newcastle United team is at the moment as well it's it's uh, not been going through a long uh, reign uh, of form it is this first time since how took over that they've lost two consecutive home games, and they tend to concede goals pretty late, which is a worry. You might say that they're not finishing teams off, that they're not adjusting their tactics. Also, you know, they are playing with two goalkeepers and three 15-year-olds on the bench. You know, how far does this squad actually go? So, yeah, I think you're right that those involved in the upper half of the Premier League would have groaned a little bit as that goal went in. I just wanted to say, just with this split round, I wasn't quite sure how I was feeling about it with the five games taking place over this weekend and then the five games coming up. But I'll be honest, I wasn't that invested in this weekend. Arsenal weren't playing. I didn't really give the Premier League a lot of, obviously, in preparation for this show, I watched the games, etc. But I'm not sure it really worked for me. I'd, I'd rather them just all take a week off rather than having to split it up. But, you know, as usual, if you can't uh, work out why something is happening, then money is always the answer. And I'm sure that the Premier League and the sponsors were keen and to have broadcasts and Premier League uh, through these next two weekends. So we'll see how the other teams who have been in Dubai and other places will roar back next weekend. Yeah, I think you answered your own question there, mate. And uh, uh, it's uh, it's interesting that, um, and I know we'll talk about this a little more in uh, in World Cup Corner, which is uh, going to be dubbed Afcon Corner uh, for for this week. But uh, it's not like there's any shortage of football with with players that uh, um, that. Uh, continental uh, European fans and English fans specifically wouldn't be aware of, uh, Willem. Uh, it, uh, it seems to me that um, there's only one one uh, international comp going on right now if you read any of the uh, of the publications or listen to the podcast. Just before we get to that, Derek, wait till we introduce you to the AFL's new concept of Round Zero, which is coming up uh, in a couple of months' time. Um, Rob, the, the snobbery is extraordinary, um, having sort of, you know, rubbed shoulders through the UK and Ireland and the Premier League is so keenly the focus and even people will talk down and, and shit can the, the the Bundesliga as a poor league. Mm-hmm. Um, it is it is alive, it's it's well, it's, it's not good. And um, I've been thinking about it a little bit. I think the position that we sit in in Australia is probably right up there. We get to, to be invested and excited about a whole range of football, whether it's the very top end, whether it's uh, whether it's the Asian Cup, whether it's the the A League, whether it's the, you know the women's game, we don't have that inherent sort of snobbery that we're at the absolute pinnacle of the game and everything else is secondary. So, yeah, not surprised that um, there isn't a great deal of. You were referencing the, the BBC there with the Asian Cup coverage. 
Yeah, yeah. No, we'll uh, we'll, we'll pull it forward then. I mean, I, I was talking specifically about that. Yes, and uh, I mean, I, I I read the BBC multiple times every day, and uh, you know, you don't. You know, I love the BBC. I'm a, a huge fan of their of their reporting and their radio and their podcasting. Um, and uh, and and this is the one time in recent times that, that I've been really disappointed with their coverage that, I mean, it's AFCON front and centre. I mean, if you do a comparison between African nations in the world's top 50 and Asian nations in the world's top 50, um, you know, I mean, Ghana, for God's sake, they're not in the top 50 anymore, but uh, uh, the the Asian countries deserve it. And I mean, when you've got players uh, playing in Europe, I, I just don't understand why they're not giving it the coverage. And, and to a certain extent, I think some of the points you make are, are not because we're any sort of uh, higher brow football fan than, than the rest of the world, insofar as the competitions, the likes of the championships and the Scottish Premiership and uh, and other competitions which are beneath the top tier European continental competitions, we follow them because that's where our players play, and uh, and and we're sort of forced to learn because uh, uh, we don't have much of a choice edge. No, we don't, do we? And it's it's interesting. I think it'll get a bit more coverage as we get into the third um, group game, Rob. Um, I think it's just obviously getting underway. I think African Afcon has a greater level of prominence because of the significance of some of the, the massive names that are there. Um, I think there's more bigger names playing in Afcon than the Asian Cup, wouldn't you think? Oh yeah, no, agreed. But uh, I, I suppose uh, you know the, the the points made. I, I think that 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 we see it also in the World Cups, uh, and and I remember it well. And I think we talked about it on this show when when Australia and uh, and Saudi Arabia, uh, some of the the. The, the people who report and you, and you think I, I'm surprised at some of the commentary from some of the intelligent people who who work in the game uh, looking down their nose at, uh, at, uh, at some of the other countries and, and competitions around the world until they come and kick their ass and um, and, and that's why I think you take a little bit more enjoyment out of it. Alright well let's wrap it up there boys. Um, you guys uh, Willem and Ed you're going to talk to Scott McIntyre in a moment our good friend Scotty. He's uh, all over the Asian Cup. You'll uh, you know you won't get any shortage of, of quality uh Feedback from the great man, and then um, and Edge and I, or Derek and I, will jump off the bench um, after you guys finish, and we'll have a chat to Raphael Honigstein and uh, and remember uh, Franz Beckenbauer in a little more detail. That's all next on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse, great savings every day, and Hoyt's Herbs and Spices, changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. We're halfway through the first round of group stage fixtures at the Asian Cup and Qatar, Australia, Japan and Iran have all banked the points expected of them. But the competitiveness shown by those below indicates surprises will take place as we go. So to digest the opening three days of competition, it's welcome once again to Scott McIntyre of the Asian Game. G'day, Scott. Good afternoon, folks. I said there that Qatar took the points expected of them. Maybe that was a little bit of creative license at play because pre-tournament expectations maybe weren't that high, but they handled Lebanon pretty comfortably on opening night. Akram Afif at the centre of uh, everything good. So would you fair to say, would it be fair to say that that's a better opening than they had against Ecuador in uh, December 22? Well, it's definitely better than that, yeah. Um, no, I, I thought they were really impressive. In fact, I think um, of all the teams that have played so far, you know, there's a few of the big guns still to come. Obviously, South Korea get their uh, campaign uh, underway tonight and then Saudi's a the day after, I think it is. So um, of the, the the bigger teams, certainly the teams that are in the World Cup, I, and, and throughout the time, I think they've been the best uh, the best team so far for me. I thought they were very well organised um, defensively. The man that you mentioned, Akram Afif, has clearly been a standout player, uh, I think, so far in the tournament. Um, a fantastic, uh, enigmatic uh, kind of player, what um, he's still doing 
playing his football um, domestically is anyone's um, guess because, you know, I mean, this guy is capable of playing at, um, at the very top a level. And you know, what a, just what a beautiful player to watch, right, um, Afifi is. Like an, an old school, I don't know, maybe something you see from uh, Brazil, you know, on these uh, highlight videos from 40, 50 years ago. He's here on the left. He's out on the right. He's, he's dropping deep. He's floating here. And, and the coach has given him a license to just go and play wherever he wants to play. I think he's, yeah, he's such a joy to watch. Um, he's got the full hair going on. And Scott, everything. I think so the, the, the coach's pre-match uh, uh, tactical session would be really simple, wouldn't it? Just give the ball to him. Yeah, yeah, but but that's a good thing because a lot of coaches would would uh, would constrain that kind of a player, right? But they've given him the freedom, and and of course the thing with Qatar, I mean, Carlos Queiroz took over, um, and and then <laughs> jumped ship, you know, whatever two three months out from the tournament. So they've had a new guy come in from the domestic league, and 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 you know, so I think there there was a bit of questions how they were going to go. Um, uh, pre-tournament, but I think they've been really, really good. Uh, you know, the the pressure's off in a way. You know, they had this kind of 10-year build-up to what was happening with the World Cup. Um, they stopped the league for a long time. They sent the national team away to camps um, in various other countries. And, uh, you know, youth development for the whole time was focused just on this one kind of tournament. And the question is now, what do they do? I mean, geopolitically, um, things have shifted. You know, they were the focus of the footballing world. Um, that's now shifted across to Saudi Arabia. So I think that kind of pressure's eased. Uh, the the, the pressure of, of expectation um, is eased as well. You know, I mean, um, I, I've seen some of the, the the crowd figures that have been posted have been impressive. I'm not sure that they quite tally up to um, the actual number of people inside, <laughs> inside the match venues. Um, I'm actually heading over to Qatar in, in a week or so as well, so I can I can confirm. I'll, I'll go around and tally those up um, in person. But, uh, you know, there's been people turning up. But there's certainly less pressure, expectation on the country. Um, that filters back to the national team. I thought they played really, really good uh, in that opening match. And, yeah, kind of, kind of laid down a mark if we think a scratchy performance from Australia, kind of scratchy-ish um, from Japan as well. So you maybe expect that in tournaments as well. But yeah, Qatar, I think, um, certainly laid down a marker early on. And we've nearly had some great stories. Not quite, but they will come. India held the Socceroos for a half. Vietnam led Japan in the first half. Tajikistan and Hong Kong, very competitive on their, uh, well, for one of them, their, their debut and for the other, their long-awaited return. So who of those less fancy nations has caught your eye, considering, of course, that we take four uh, third-place finishes into the knockouts? Yeah, yeah, that's it's a strange tournament, right? This whole thing. And, and even you don't know... You know, who you're going to marry up with in, in the next round as well. Yeah, I think um, the Tajiks were certainly very, uh, yeah, yeah, very, very, very impressive. And their coach I've um, interviewed a few times down there. He's a, definitely a character as well, this Peter Peter Seggert. Um, Scott, but, I saw know, it at his yeah. pre-match uh, press conference. He went round and shook, he, he left the uh, <laughs> the table and he went round and he shook the hand of every single person who was in the room. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's certainly, um, he, he's, he's, he's certainly a, a bit, big character. Um and certainly the, the kind of coach that that doesn't want to sit back. So I think that was a positive thing as well because, William, you touched on a couple of the teams that 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 maybe kind of held results for a while, but I'm, I'm not quite sure the way that they did it is, is the way to go about things. You know, India um, you know, obviously sat back very deep. Vietnam did the same as well. But I think the difference with Tajikistan is that they actually went out and tried to play football. And, you know, it's a decent kind of technically gifted player. So particularly in this kind of the way that the structure that we talked about one win you know maybe it's enough to get you through you know to, to the second round so i think it really benefits the teams that, that want to go out and play football so yeah it'd be interesting to see you know particularly over the, the next couple of days some of the southeast asian uh, kind of nations how they get on um you know indonesia uh thailand malaysia as well countries that in our, in, in our region that have you know, good technical football players as well. Will they, you know, kind of take that man or what the Tajiks uh, set down or will they look, you know, maybe to to scratch things, you know, so that some of the other nations set out to do and, and ultimately didn't didn't serve them any good. 
Scott, um, there's some big names uh, primarily in Korea and uh, Japan at this tournament. I just want to touch on a couple. Let's talk about the Koreans who get underway tonight. Obviously, Son Hung Min and uh, Kim Min Jae, two massive names, uh, Tottenham and Bayern Munich, respectively. Um, how much pressure is on these boys and how much pressure is on Korea? It's been a big drought for them at the Asian Cup. You know, what can we expect from the Koreans and how do you think they'll cope with um, probably joint favouritism probably up there with Japan and Iran? Yeah, I mean, it's been more than a drought. It's been 60 years. I mean, you know, the, I think, um, looked back at the other day, I think that, you know, the last time Korea ran the World Cup was when credit cards were invented for the first time. So it's been... It's been a hell of a long, a long time, time ago. since since they were there. Um, and and yeah, like you said, the, the pressure, um, I think externally, okay, maybe uh, not so much. It's good for the tournament. I mean, it's great for the tournament to have, you know, the names that you touch in the Korean squad, the names are in, in obviously in the Japan squad, some of the Iranian guys playing at a very high level um, as well. And even a few of the players at the, at the smaller nations also at a good level. But you've got Song in, in Son, certainly like a, a global um, star, you know, one of the top players um, in world football. So him to come back and and also you, you think maybe three four additions over these kind of players might, might not have come back you know there would have been pressure from the clubs to stay so it's good from the tournament that they're here um for, for me I, th I think the one for korea though is lee kung in uh, really um you know obviously play the the, the, high, the highest level in france and and i i think you know whatever he's 21 22 i think he's um He's uh, probably the guy that's going to take over Song's mantle long term for Korea and, and has the potential to be, you know, maybe the same kind of level and the same kind of influence as Song. So you've you've got a guy at the peak of his career in in, in Son Heung Min, and then you've got this young kind of really fantastic emerging star in Lee Kang In uh, Huang Chan, who's been doing very well in the Premier League as well. So and, and yeah, like you touched on um, Kim In Jae and, and some other quality uh, defenders, good goalkeepers as well. So they're. Um, they're, they're a really good side um, career. And yeah, I think, like you said, along with Japan, probably rightly considered one of the favourites. The Iranians, uh, they got away um, a really comfortable win. They looked extremely good. Um, mm. um, Mehdi Tarimi, he's their gun. Um, he's 31 years of, of age. He's scored 43 goals and 76 international appearances. Um, the Iranians, to me, they look extremely good. And uh, I'm expecting them to go very deep in the tournament. What's your early take on having seen them uh, get underway yeah certainly they look very good comfortable win in the end 4-1 against palestine maybe it could have been a, even a little bit bigger you wonder i think if um yeah i don't know if palestine are going to be at the end of too many hidings at this tournament i think the teams will maybe take it a little bit easier on them but um yeah they clicked into gear uh, straight away sada rasmun uh, wasn't fit enough to start came off the bench and looked good when he came on you touched on mediterranean someone uh godos is now back doing very uh very well they've got uh, very good uh, and experienced defense uh, good goalkeepers as well so they've got threats um uh, ali reza jahambash as well was really good yesterday too so they've got threats uh right across the pitch players in form um obviously you know there's always um off the field issues and and whatnot with iran as well coaching changes um kind of factional fightings in the background but you know, i think they um yeah along with qatar they they, they certainly are impressed in in getting a, a very convincing win first up okay last one for me then back to willem what about the australian scott um it was a you called it scratchy i would call it spluttering um a typical sort of first up um um, performance, uh, you know, when a, a team that's expected to be a contender just sort of got through with a lot of question marks. Um, I'm expecting the Australians will build through the tournament. Um, what did you take out of it from an Australian perspective? 
I mean, obviously they came up against an opponent that made it very difficult to play through. Um, and, and I think, you know, you know, we've spoken before maybe a little bit about India and I don't, I don't know how seriously the, the the coach was approaching a, a lot of things in the build-up to the tournament. And then certainly they set out the stall to to try and get a point because, again, you know, maybe you managed to nick three draws and you could might get through to the second round as well. So they, they frustrated Australia. Uh, I'm not sure Australia dealt with that um, very well, but the the bigger question uh, around the Socceroos is um, when they do meet these uh, kind of teams, whether it's teams trying to stifle them in the group stage or or simply defensively better organised and, and and teams are better able to control things defensively the deeper that the tournament progresses. Do uh, the Socceroos have the uh, have the quality to break open these kind of games. Uh, you know, there's there's no uh, Tommy Rogic uh, kind of character. There's no um, Adin uh, Hustic. There's there's none of. I, I don't think um, certainly. And you know, the, the way to play, it's let's say it's a four-two-three-one. It looks to me that uh, the the two eights and the ten, they're all kind of natural sixes. You know, so I don't know where I don't know where the I don't know where the game changer is, to be honest. You know, we've got a lot of um, uh, quick wingers that can take players on and and can and can put crosses in. And you know, we've got tall physical threats to deal with those uh, situations and and converting those opportunities in in the box with likes of Fawn Rolly and Duke and so on. But I think the the central creativity, um, <clears throat> yeah. I mean, I don't know unless you you shift a player, maybe like Silvera centrally. I, I would have liked to see someone a, a bit different in the squad, even it's in Iran Kundra, maybe, you know, he can come in centrally. But I think in the central areas, we just don't have that kind of a player that can, you know, that can change the game, we, which are obviously other nations in this tournament do. Even we saw Japan struggling last night and, you know, a couple of moments of class from Minamino, who's not even a starter for Japan in, in that kind of central role and boom, 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 and he kind of settled the game uh, for Japan. I don't think the Socceroos have that kind of player. I think it's going to be a real issue the longer that the tournament goes on. Scott, just a final one on Japan. They are the hot favourites heading in, but it does seem sort of incongruous given they're just such a, a rich history of uh, of youth development and planning and progression that they have arrived at this tournament with three very inexperienced uh, goalkeepers. Long gone are the days of the sort of um, the, the stability that Eji Kawashima, you just on the team sheet, he'd always be there. Zoran Suzuki was the man who was given uh, the gloves first up, just 21 years old, and uh, he could be considered at fault for one of the goals. How do you view this situation? And is this maybe maybe the, uh, you know, you don't want to don't wish their downfall, but is, yeah, is this a, a potential chink in the armour as the tournament rolls on? Yeah, yeah. AG Kawashima's just come back to the J League, actually. Okay. <laughs> announced a couple of days ago. Yeah, at um, at, at, at Jublo that, that went up to from J two to J one. So he's um he's back. But um, yeah, this is a real problem, and I think you're absolutely right to point it out. Um, I think I'm right in saying both Suzuki and um one of the backup keepers, um, Brandon uh, Nozo, are both American born or have American background. So it's a little bit unusual situation. And yeah, like a, a year ago, um, Sion Suzuki was third choice at Urawa. Um, and for me, he's not an international level keeper, certainly not at this point um, of his career. Neither is Nozar and probably um, uh, Maikawa, who's the third one uh, in the squad. I think um, uh, the guy from Hiroshima, Keisuke Osaka, probably would have been maybe first choice, but he was dealing with a bit of a knock. But for me, there's brilliant keepers in the J-League that should be in this squad. I don't know what they're not doing in there. One of them, um, we can go deep on the politics of this, but um, he's what they uh, refer to here as a Zainichi. It's, a, it's an ethnic uh, Korean. Uh, who only received his uh, formal Japanese citizenship despite being born and <laughs> raised in Japan a couple of years ago. Um, mm -hmm. Park Yulgu, the guy who's at um, Sagantosu, smaller kind of jail club, he's a fantastic keeper. It's another guy at uh, Niigata, Ryosuke Kojima, I think are great keepers. I think so, so there's better keepers that could have been picked, so I'm not sure why 
these three are the three in the squad. Um, I think you're being generous in saying he was at fault for one. I think he was probably at fault for both of the goals last night, Suzuki. And yeah, this is a huge, um, it's a huge issue. Also, um, just defensively as well. You know, the fullbacks are maybe not what we've seen from Japan. Uh, there's issues in central defence. Um, Tomiyasu is uh, still not fit to play, so there's issues there. Um, yeah, so I, I think defensively things are going to be a struggle for Japan. But um, certainly in terms of the the central midfield components and then the the, the advanced um, three um, for maybe some. Issues with the with the pure nine as well, but the 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 two midfield lines there, um, yeah, they're absolutely stacked. So um, the question with Japan, it comes back to again the coach, who's a conservative guy by nature, um, but has issues defensively, and um, and, and the main threats are coming attacking. So how do you kind of marry that? Do, do you? For me, I, I think Japan, if they're going to win the tournament, they probably need to be winning games like they did last night. You know, four two, basically these kind of score lines. But um, yeah, that I, I, you're absolutely right to point it out because I think uh, in goal it's a huge issue for them, and that's something that yeah that that could hurt them the deeper that they go into the tournament. Scott, always magnificent to chat. Thank you very much, my friend. Safe travels over to Qatar and enjoy your time uh, at the tournament. May it continue to uh, to deliver as we as we go. No worries, guys, and thanks. Yeah, thanks for the ongoing coverage of of this tournament and for football generally. No, and for really proper in depth ongoing coverage of the Asian game, do head to uh, that podcast, the Asian game. I uh, I managed to to punch through all of the the previews before kickoff, which I, I was pretty happy with, Scott. So uh, thank you to to you and Paul and Michael and and to the crew there. And do do yourselves a favour uh, and jump on the Asian game podcast after box to box. Stick around on the other side. Rob and Derek will be back with Raphael Honigstein to pay tribute to De Kaiser, Franz Beckenbauer. Now, Chemist Warehouse wants to give you a free doctor consult. With telehealth, you can get access to medical advice, prescriptions and more between 6am and midnight, seven days a week. Now, Derek, as a father of two young children, they always seem to get sick at the worst possible times, don't they? They do. In fact, any eagle-eared listeners will hear that I am actually ill recording this podcast at the moment. I I caught something off my son last week and it's been one of those slow burn... uh, Slow burn illnesses, so maybe I need to take advantage of that free doctor's consult, Rob. Well, I hope you get better soon, my friend. Well, if you're going to do that, you just got to download the Instant Consult app. Now, get your pen or text it to yourself or write a, a digital note. Save the coupon code CWFREE and get your first consult free. Valid for the first 10,000 consults, you'll speak to an experienced Australian registered doctor through a video call within minutes. I've joined it myself, it works perfectly. After you consult, an e-script will be sent to your phone immediately, so you can order medication online to go to your nearest chemist warehouse store. So Derek, uh, does that sound all right for you? Perfect. Write all that down, Rob. I'll be on my way. All right, so if you didn't write it down, do it now. Download the Instant Consult app today and have the doctor waiting for you. T's and C's apply. To box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box. Now, as I introduce our next guest, Raphael Honigstein from The Athletic, who, by the way, has been one of the international go-to voices leading the tributes to Franz Beckenbauer. I'll begin by listing the honours of Der Kaiser, as we've already discussed, alongside Mario Zagallo and Didier Deschamps. He won the World Cup as a player and manager, a Euro title, three European Cups, five Bundesliga titles, four with Bayern and one at the end of his career with Hamburg, four German Cups, a two-time winner of the Ballon d'Or, the only defender to win it twice, and four-time German Footballer of the Year. Raph we welcome you back to box to box can i go back to the beginning and ask you what was it about Yuri beckenbauer that mirrored the times he emerged in 
and seemed to reflect uh, the changing role of a defender from what had previously been, as I watched the Bundesliga tribute, uh, described him, uh, described a defender of the times as uncompromising, unforgiving destroyers to, to one of elegance and artistry. Yeah, I mean, Franz Beckenbauer reinterpreted the uh, sweeper role and uh, made it synonymous with himself by using the man-marking system against his opponents, um, being so deep that you had no one against you, then allowed you to step into midfield and use that freedom, of course, with the prerequisite skill that he had to be the deep-lying playmaker, to score goals, to spread the ball around. And initially, he was really an attacking midfielder who was sort of hidden in defensive midfield or even deeper because coaches were afraid that uh, with his technique, his, his style of playing, he'd be, become a natural target for hard man to rough him up. And maybe, you know, in those days um, with fouls being allowed uh, one or two before the referee got even his yellow card out, that his career might be curtailed. And from that moment on, when he came through in year old, he was sort of a teenage sensation and became synonymous with uh, first the Bayern Munich team that went from Bundesliga to, or sorry, it didn't exist then, from the second division to the Bundesliga. And within the space of two years had won the European Cup of Cup winners <laughs> and then went on to win countless other titles. And that was, that was France. And yeah, I mean, we can talk about so many elements that made him special, but I think it all goes back to the beauty and the elegance he exuded on the ball, which really made him stand out, not just as a defender, but as a footballer full stop. And and he was the ultimate renaissance man. He was a footballer, he was an administrator, he was a playboy at times. Uh, uh, but um, insofar as his place in the iconography of German characters, uh, uh, we in Australia obviously have uh, uh, sporting greats that sit on the pantheon at the very elite level. Uh, uh, Don Bradman is a name that uh, that we recall playing cricket with a golf ball and a stump hitting it against a, 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 a corrugated iron uh, water tank. Uh, you talk about Beckenbauer playing football against a brick wall in the ruins of Munich post-World War II. Um, it seems to me to be a very neat and um, and deep thinking kind of segue to 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 talk about him uh, being uh, one of the most respected international uh, Germans of the modern era out of the the post war uh, ruins. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. He came to represent not just sporting success but also Germany's rebirth as a, as a country. Born in September '45, just a couple of months after the World War, in, in a bombed-out Munich, and from those ruins, um, excellence, but also grace and and real humanity emerged. He was a very different type of German, a good-natured, uh, very very polite, made everyone feel good. The, the fact that he was such a successful official for FIFA later on was not down to power, but down to his ability to connect with people. And yeah, Franz Beckenbauer was sort of, I think, up until the very late point when some of the scandals came to haunt him, 
up until a very late point in his life, I think he was the exemplary German um, with, with flaws, of course, like any human being, not a perfect person, but the good far outweighed the bad. And he gave Germany an international sheen of glamour and presence, West Germany, I should say, up until 1990, that people were, were longing for and were internally grateful for him. And I don't know if it's hypo hyperbole, but I've been trying to think of another German post-war who has been so present and so dominant in public life uh, for all these decades, not just for 20 years or 30 years, but really for, for all these decades of his life. And I can't think of anyone else. So I think Franz Beckenbauer is who, beyond football, probably has come to represent uh, West German post-world post society uh, in a way that uh, people will be eternally thankful and happy for. Rafa, I wanted to discuss three World Cups that Beckenbauer played in with misfortunes from a results point of view, but obviously part of this story and this iconic legacy that, that made him one of the greats, um, starting in 1966 and the final in London, West Germany, England, obviously more famous uh, for the circumstances and how England won the game, but a young Beckenbauer was deployed with a very specific uh, mission and player in mind. Can you tell our listeners about his role in the game and, and how that, you know, ultimately affected that match. Yeah, and in 66, Beckenbauer had not yet uh, fully grown into the sweeper role. Germany were playing with a, uh, a more basic system and he was a defensive midfielder. But from that position, he was able to go forward his pace. His technique allowed him to score four goals. He was absolutely the breakout star for this, for this Germany team. Um, but because he was still fairly junior, 20 years uh, old, um, Helmut Schoen asked him to mark the uh, playmaker of England, which was, of course, Bobby Charlton. And uh, Bobby Charlton very gracefully at the meeting of those two um, final teams in the run-up of the 2006 uh, World Cup in London at the uh, German embassy, was I, I was privileged to be there. Um, said that they both marked each other out of the game. I'm, I'm not sure if that's entirely true, if he was just being uh, being very nice. But uh, the impact was that both didn't really play to their usual standards and the game, as we know, was, was decided elsewhere. Going into 1970, and of course West Germany had already avenged the defeat by England, knocking them out in the quarter finals. Um, but it was the game in the semi-final that was dubbed the, the game of the century in years to come. Um, by all accounts, it was one of Beckenbauer's finest games in a, in a German shirt up until that point. Uh, but again, defeat in the most dramatic of circumstances uh, in extra time. But what was it about that performance that, that made people lord, lord what he had done in that game? I think Beckenbauer's um, elegance and ability to play without looking down at the ball made him slightly suspicious uh, in the eyes of many people. He didn't sweat, he didn't run, didn't do all the things that footballers uh, were supposed to do. And I think people for a long time didn't quite know what to make of it. But in this particular game, he dislocated his shoulder and played through the pain with just a few straps. 
And I think perception really changed because um, he did it very nonchalantly. He didn't look as if he was in any pain and just carried on. But I think people were beginning to understand that there's a really steely competitor underneath all the, the beauty and the elegance and sometimes the arrogance that he showed uh, because he was so superior to everybody else. So I think even though it was a, a defeat for Germany, it was an important um, game for Beckenbauer as far as the perception of him uh, was concerned. But of course, by then he was well on his way to becoming an absolute superstar. And those big trophies, first with Germany and with Bayern, were just around the corner. And in the beginning of the 70s, then when he started lifting international silverware uh, quite regularly, I think people knew that this guy was, was very special indeed. Yes, and it was in 1974 when Beckenbauer, as the captain, finally got his hands on the Jules Rimi trophy. Of course, this was at home. Uh, they were playing the much fancied Dutch side of, of Johan Cruyff and their total football. Um, in that game, how, how is it reflected on as Franz, the leader, not just in that game, but West Germany throughout the tournament? There must have been a lot of pressure being the home side, obviously, the two the two very hurtful defeats that they'd had in the last two tournaments. But how did Franz, the leader of the West Germany side, emerge in that tournament? Well, Germany were, were presumed winners, really, of this World Cup because they'd won the Euros and they'd won it in, in so much style that up until this day, the 1972 team is hailed as the best ever, not the 74 team. But it created a tremendous expectation. And unfortunately, the weather was really bad. Unfortunately, um, some terrorist attacks had really changed the mood in, in the country. There was a lot of security after what happened in the Munich Olympics uh, with the Palestinian terror attacks on Israeli athletes. And the Germany team were sort of almost incarcerated in a, in a sporting uh, university, very basic, very, very basic uh, accommodation. And it didn't have a good time. And I think the togetherness wasn't quite there. And when they lost against the GDR, the East German um, Socialist Republic, um, that was a huge embarrassment. And Franz Beckenbauer really took charge and sort of gently, but very forcefully, um, had a word with Helmut Schoen and redirected the way the team should play. Um, he said, these guys are in, those guys are out. And then suddenly Germany clicked and started playing. And of course, it ended up with uh, quite a bit of defensive work from Beckenbauer, who didn't like heading the ball um, because he was very conscious of his hair, um, who didn't necessarily like to uh, go down and make tackles, but threw himself into this uh, alongside uh, Sepp Meyer, who had one of his most heroic games in goal for Germany. And of course, they, they managed to win it. Um, I think looking back, there's there's almost sort of a bittersweet note to this to this World Cup win because Germany could not quite play at their real potential, and to a lot of casual observers, especially as as things have moved on, uh, it was almost seen as if they were sort of the the villains of the piece, robbing the Dutch of what would have been a, a more beautiful and more deserved World Cup. But it's really important to remember that this Germany team played football that was just at the same level, uh, perhaps slightly better than the Dutch. The problem is they couldn't show it at the World Cup. They showed it two years earlier. 
Um, so I think they're a little bit underrated in terms of the fluidity, the creativity that it brought. Um, but of course, they got the trophy to console themselves. So it's perhaps a niche <laughs> niche um, concern, but I think it's, it's worth mentioning. And of course, it was the first time the, the World Cup of the modern era was, was ever lifted um, after uh, the, uh, uh, the Brazilians had won uh, sufficiently uh, uh, amount of times, uh, for want of a better description, uh, to be given the, the Jules Rime um, in, uh, in, in previous uh, iterations. The, uh, the question then from, a, uh, that from an Australian point of view, um, we, we obviously have uh, deep connections with that 1974 World Cup being the first uh, time Australia ever qualified and, and played both West and East Germany in our group along with Chile uh, and um, and then ultimately when Australia did break through, I showed you that cap earlier the, from the 2006 World Cup. And, uh, you know, it's it's uh, a sore point for Australians because um, we were obviously beaten by uh, the Italians in the knockout stage. And many Australian football fans claim that if we had a beaten Italy in that game, uh, we would have gone on to win the entire tournament, as I'm sure any good international football judge would agree. But... Uh, um, that 2006 World Cup does uh, does come with, uh, as you referred to earlier in our, our conversation, um, a, a tinge of uh, uh, just the uh, the the unfortunate parts of, of Beckenbauer's legacy. I mean, if you wade in the the, the pigsty, uh, which was FIFA at the time, then you you need to play by their rules. And ironically, it was Charlie Dempsey, the Oceaneer representative, who who stood out at the final third round of voting that uh, that gave Germany the uh, the the, uh, the World Cup rights ahead of South Africa, who obviously won the next one. And uh, and he he talked about the pressure that he was under from both sides uh, to, uh, to 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 sell his vote and and refuse to. So um, many, including Beckenbauer, uh, say that uh, that he was he, you know he was not a businessman he wasn't familiar with the, the the arcane sort of nuances that went on with that bid but i mean how do you see this uh raf in terms of his entire legacy and uh, and and what responsibility uh, uh he he um needs to have attributed to him for for his um, participation in in the way that all played out yeah i, I don't think beckenbauer was as naive as he as he sometimes made out he said he signed all sorts of documents that people showed him and he didn't even know what he was signing. Um, I think uh, Germany and Beckenbauer had been around the block long enough to understand how FIFA worked at that point. And up until I think 2002, you could even claim back kickback money on your tax account. So it's so seen as a as a necessary evil to do business in some places. And that's what happened in this bid. I don't think there's any doubt uh, when you saw see what happened to those ex-co members uh, afterwards that a lot of them took money for their votes. And I'm sure that Germany played the game. The problem was when those stories came out in the mid uh, part of last last decade, instead of saying, those were the times, it wasn't pretty, but we had to do it. Uh, Beckenbauer pretended to have not known anything, um, said uh, nothing untoward what's ever happened and lost a lot of credibility. Um, and he also insisted that he hadn't taken any money from, from the bid to do this job later, the merge that he'd actually uh, been paid about 5 million euros by one of the sponsors to get involved. So I think the way 
that he tried to sort of um, downplay the sharp practices at the time um, made it made it harder um, for him to to be taken entirely seriously. And I think he did himself a, a bit of damage towards the end. But ultimately, I think people a realized that that was necessary to get the World Cup, and probably think it was a price worth paying. And B, it it really I think is is one of the negative footnotes in a long career that will not be at the forefront of people's minds when they think of Franz Beckenbauer. I think they much prefer to remember the sporting success, the the beauty, the uh, the charm that he exuded, and um, will probably choke this up as yeah as politicians doing doing bad things as they as they sometimes do because they feel they have to or because they get caught up in a system that is so corrupt that nobody emerges untaint, untainted and unfortunately he was very high up and uh, played the game just as everybody else did yeah it's um when we were all flawed human beings, aren't we, Raph? I mean, uh, none of us uh, uh, escaped this um, this life without having made choices that we'd otherwise uh, uh, like to have made different choices with. And, and whether it was what he did at the time or the way he he um, he spoke about it after the event, and um, and and should he have taken more, had he have taken more responsibility for it? Maybe the ironically, the um, the credibility might have uh, have stuck a, a little tighter. But uh, you know, as we sort of close the the chat. The, the, the bigger picture of his entire life as a person, uh, the things that seem to be consistent amongst all of the people that speak about him, the, the clips that you watch, the um, the former players, the, the fans, um, et cetera, around the world, um, all talk about him as, as a decent guy, you know, as, as one that um, you talk about arrogance. I think that arrogance was confined to what happened within the, the rectangular of the football pitch as opposed to, to what happened off it where he was considered to be a, uh, a decent and a generous guy. So um, we'll we'll wrap it up there, mate, and, and, and thank you very much. We know you're probably one of the busiest journalists uh, going around the world of football at the best of times, let alone when a, an icon of the stature of Franz Beckenbauer passes. And uh, we really are very grateful that you've made the time to uh, to talk to our Australian-based podcast to, to reflect on his memory. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Raphael Honigstein from The Athletic. If you don't subscribe, make sure you do. Uh, you'll see and read some of the best copy that there is uh, on international football, the Bundesliga, etc. from Raph. Okay, stick around. World Cup Corner. We're going to wrap up AFCON after the break. Well, 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 everybody's going to buy Hoyt Spices. Everyone's going to save a dollar or two. Everybody's going to buy Hoyt Spices, yeah. Ooh, we always talk about flavour-packed meals on this show. Willem, are you getting to do much cooking over there uh, in uh, in the Netherlands? I am, Rob. I've got my own uh, apartment with a kitchen, as most apartments do have, and my food is tasty, but not, It's as they would say here, it's lecker, but it's not schmarkelek. It's tasty, but it's not delicious, and I'm missing something. Well, you know, I mean, anyone who knows their history knows that the, the Dutch were great sailors and great travellers, and they... they uh, I don't know that they found the Spice Islands, but they did trade a lot in spices. So I'm expecting a, a little more from you over the coming months, Willem. Um, and I might have to send you a Hoyt some um, love pack. Hey, Michael, uh, um, do you think that would be a good idea? I think that's a great idea. It, uh, 
Willem uh, all spiced up in the in the Netherlands, uh, but the, the old Dutch East India Company uh, would have yes. been, would been coming a, back the uh, other way. Yeah, that's right. There would have been a few spices going along that uh, virtual shipping highway, wouldn't there, Rob? That's exactly what back they in did. the day, one hundred percent. So, look, I'm not talking about recipes today. I'm just talking about you. Just inspire yourself. Think of your favourite meals, get online, do a YouTube search, find the herbs and spices, get them from Coles, Woolworths or your good independent supermarkets. Get the value packs, I use them all the time. Refill your empty spice jars, you will be happy with Hoyts. Fill those empties with Hoyts and spices, yeah. Box to box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box. Really hope you're enjoying the show. Um, we always try our best and, and work really hard to bring some of the best guests from around the world of, uh, of football to you. And uh, I don't think they get much better than what uh, we've had on the show this week with Raphael Honigstein, an authority on football, let alone German football, and the memories of uh, Franz Beckenbauer and, of course, Scott McIntyre. No one knows Asian football better than he does. Uh, so World Cup Corner is going to cross over into AFCON Corner, stroke a little bit of other football news will Yes, it is going to be Afghan Corner, Rob, uh, for now at least. But before we get there, there's been uh, a, a departure in the A-League women's. This, uh, this gentleman, uh, Ro- uh, Michael, has had a, a profound effect on Australian football over many, many years in many different guises, uh, including with the Matildas during World Cup campaigns. And it is Gary Van Egmont. Yeah, Gary Van Egmont, who um, has got the Newcastle Jets into sixth position in the A-League women's table. They're actually equal fourth on points uh, in sixth position on goal difference. Um, interestingly, um, he's left uh, very quick smart. Uh, the announcement was made today. He's leaving with immediate effect. Uh, apparently before Christmas, he was over in China talking to the Chinese FA. So that's a huge blow for women's football and the A-League women's competition. He, he's a coach with enormous credentials. There's quite a few players went there to play for him. So, yeah, it's just, it doesn't it doesn't sit comfortably with me, this one. But look, Ultimately, uh, like Ross Aloisi at Brisbane yes. Roar in the men's game, you can't deny someone for looking for a better opportunity and a, and a better financial gain. So I don't criticise him for that. It's just a disappointing loss for the Newcastle Jets. who have been pretty crap in the women's game for many years. And this season, they're looking like they uh, were going to give the finals a bit of a shake. Maybe they still can, but Gary Van Engblond uh, joining the coaches exodus to Asia. He's going to be uh, in the same country as Kevin Musket and Ross Aloisi. And Greg King, and uh, across the uh, across the, the the straight, he's got Harry Kuehl, John Hutchison, and Peter Klamowski in Japan. So Gary Van Eggman, just another one off to Asia. We're going to start Afcon Corner with a story which is awful, but thankfully goes at the back of the show and not the the front. It is that Gambia's flight to uh, to the tournament initially was a, a, a borderline disaster. Uh, the flight lost oxygen and cabin pressure. A number of players lost consciousness. The plane became incredibly hot. Uh, and as I say, this was uh, apparently a, a very near proper tragic tale, uh, all down to the pilot who turned around and, and landed after nine minutes, having recognized the situation. Uh, and by all reports, it was not necessarily obvious so yeah he, he has been lauded as, as a bit of a hero thanks to his quick thinking so uh, disaster averted there on the eve of AFCON as we speak we've had four matches played and already a couple of uh, shocks uh, Derek I'm sure you've been across a bit of this action the Ivory Coast on opening night pretty comfortable against Guinea uh, Bissau or Bissau but uh, from there Nigeria who uh, were not one of Rob Stevens's big four contenders uh, held by Equatorial Guinea one apiece. Victor Oshiman uh, of Napoli, a bit of chat that he will be 
uh, off to another club shortly on the score sheet. And then Egypt needed a, a 97th-minute Mo Salah penalty to rescue a point uh, against Mozambique before finally uh, Ghana, it was, who succumbed to uh, well the minnows, if you like, not to be disrespectful, but uh, Cape Verde uh, did them 2-1. Gary Rodriguez sliding into an empty net in the 92nd minute and ripping the kid off and, uh, and heading to the stands for some mass celebration. Yeah, some really interesting results there, Willem. I think what it's illustrating to us is that the gap between the sort of smaller teams and and the so-called powerhouses is definitely closing, and, and we've seen that for some time. I think, you know, you'd expect Nigeria on paper to be beating Equatorial Guinea, similar for Ghana over Cape Verde um, and Egypt and Mozambique. I mean, goodness gracious me, a poorest country in the world, and they're holding a, such an esteemed team with one of the best players in the world. So... Yeah, I, th- I think GAFCON is definitely more competitive than, than maybe it has been uh, in previous years. And, and thankfully for Ivory Coast, they avoided the banana skin by getting their um, getting their campaign up and running. Though the one complaint I have is just, and this is not just for this tournament, but whoever does the uh, clipping for Be In Sports, why do you make your packages so long? They, they do it for Old Firm, they do it for all these games. And, you know, Some of them, these packages are 10, 11, 12 minutes long. Who's got time for that? I'd like to see nice, tight cut, three to four minutes packages, please be in sport. Uh, I can be more across this thing. While you're on that, Derek, whoever's doing them for the A-League, you get a, a three-minute and a six-minute up, but the six-minute is just the same highlights drawn out with more replays, so you don't actually get more of the action. Very disappointing. Well, uh, and to well, close, Rob, uh, yes. I, had, on, I was watching some of the highlights today, and uh, I, I know I hate to say this, and I'm going to comment on, on some other uh, Unite Round stuff, but at the end of one of the highlights packages, you know what I saw, an ad for the Unite round. So whoever's doing the digital <laughs> advertising, get you know, please, let's uh, a little more attention to detail. Thank you. Uh, a word for Andre Ayew, who's been a, a great player for Ghana for many years. He always pops up at, at World Cups and, and AFCONs, definitely always pops up at AFCONs because uh, in their their uh, loss to, to Cape Verde, he became just the third player to feature at eight different AFCON finals tournaments. He joins Rigobert Song of Cameroon and Ahmed Hassan of Egypt in in doing so. So he's played, as we know, for Swansea, West Ham, Nottingham Forest, all over the place. He's still only 34. Uh, and if he can find the net edge, he will have been the first man to score at seven different editions. That's just unbelievable, isn't it? You've got to remind people that happens every two years, AFCON, but um, it's still a fair, it's, a, it's an incredible performance and I hope he scores. I really do. Yes. Uh, well, uh, one story I'm um, I'm looking out for is uh, the Manchester United keeper Andre Onana, who um, I, I don't know that we really sort of picked up on, on a lot of this, but um, but he was. Um, do you guys remember what happened uh, in in, uh, in Qatar um, uh, when uh, there was a bit of a blow up in the Cameroon camp, and uh, he was kicked out and uh, sent home midway through the tournament? So um, let's just see if. Uh, if Andre can can manage to uh, to see himself to to the back, keep end it together. Team. You reckon? Is he going? Is he? Sorry, he was selected, but he no, played no, against he, he Tottenham. Played, he did, and yeah. he was he was on he was almost at Manchester Airport um, as soon as he um, he had his shower. So you know yep. he's heading over there. All right, um, cue in the rack, Willem. Yes, thank you, everybody. Have a great week. All right, well done. Um, we'll talk to you in stoppage time, Edge. You're going to take a bit of a break from stoppage time this week. Uh, enjoy the Asian Cup. Thank you, Rob, uh, and all the listeners. Enjoy the Asian Cup, AFCON, and all the rest of the football that's uh, coming your way over the next uh, week. And Derek, go have to get you down to Chemist Warehouse, get you some vitamin C and a few other um, bits and pieces to, to get uh, you back to your normal fighting weight. Thank you very much, Rob.
and to our good friend Adam Maloney, who is just the absolute best in the business in terms of podcasts and editing and producing and pulling everything together. I don't come any better than him. And to you, our listeners, thank you again for tuning in. Please subscribe to box to box Stoppage Time and Offside, wherever you get your podcasts. Tweet us at box to box NTS and follow us on X. Like us on Facebook and join us throughout the week as our podcasts drop and we go from one end of the pitch to the other in the world game.